You know, I have to tell you that um, it's a great honor to be the pastor of this church and to know each of you. And I can't help but every time I speak to realize that uh, this isn't about me speaking to you, but this is about God speaking to you. And that God loves you and wants to minister to you, wants to communicate His heart to you. And so every time I come up here on Sunday mornings, I'm, uh, I'm not nervous, but I'm very aware of how serious a matter it is for anyone to come and speak in behalf of God to His people because I realize His love for you and that uh, as His under-shepherd, that my obligation before you this morning is to bring the Word in such a way that it's communicated accurately with His heart and that you would be motivated and prompted into a deeper love relationship with Him this morning. And that's my prayer, is that that would happen in your life. That you would know the depth of His love and that as we study chapter 8 of Revelation today, that you would be motivated into a deeper and more lasting and fuller love relationship than you've ever had before with Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit and with your Father. I want to give a brief recap just before we read chapter 8 of Revelation and tell you that uh, Revelation, the, the word Revelation in the Greek is apocalypsis. It means the unveiling. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling of the future of the world and it's the unveiling of the future of mankind. And as you know, John the Apostle was commissioned by Jesus Christ to write what he had seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And we know from our study of Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, that uh, that is the key to interpreting the book of Revelation. So far in our study, we've discovered that Jesus Christ has very specific messages for his church as we study the seven churches of Asia Minor. We also know that the church in chapter 4 at that point has been raptured and is off the scene. That the things that happen and occur in chapter 4 to the end of the book up until chapter 19 do not deal with the church at all, but they deal with what the Bible refers to as the inhabitants of the earth. Men and women who do not know the Lord and who have been left behind. We also know that the Lamb is the only one that was found worthy in all of heaven and all of creation to open the scroll. And as you remember, the scroll represents the title deed to the earth that Satan, through his wicked temptation and through his deception, had usurped authority over the earth. And Jesus Christ, the only one who was worthy to take that authority back, and he's taking it back through a scroll, the title deed to the earth. That title deed had seven seals affixed on it. And one by one, those seals were removed and we studied those seals. Those seals are the beginning of judgment of the world. And yet, in the midst of this judgment that God has planned for the future of this existence that we know now, He continues to show mercy and continues to demonstrate His love because He progressively and increasingly in its intensification begins to judge the world. He doesn't just judge it immediately and everything's all over, but there's, a, there's an intensification and the very purpose for that is to cause men and women to finally recognize and turn to God. And many, many will. In fact, we found out in chapter 7 that 144,000 Messianic Jews would become preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a multitude, uncountable multitude, would come to Christ. And we found them martyred because of their faith in chapter 7 
before the throne of God. A lot of people have a very difficult time with the whole concept of God judging, of wrath. Everybody loves the God of love. Everybody, like, oh, that's the God of love, that's the God I serve. The God you're talking about, I know nothing of. You know, they don't want to accept the fact that God is both a God of love, but also a God of judgment. And in reality, every single one of us want a God of righteousness and justice and judgment. Every one of us abhor iniquity and sin. And when we see injustice perpetrated on innocent victims, we say, that's wrong. There's something wrong about that. And then when they're released and they, they get off on some small technicality in the law, some, you know, they, they weren't read their Miranda rights on the, just perfectly, or they, the, the methodology for obtaining the evidence wasn't just quite right, and they get off having murdered a child or, or a group of people or a family, and we say, that's not right. When will there be justice in the world? And so even for us, we know that there must be justice. And God is a God of supreme love. But He is also a God who will not let sin and iniquity go unpunished. He will make things right. And Revelation is a book both of God's intense love as well as His certain justice. I want to read this chapter if you'd join me in reading it. It's in chapter 8 of Revelation. Verses 1 through 13. Referring to John as he continues his description of the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. 
Father, we come to you this morning and Lord, this chapter is not a cheery chapter. It's a chapter of destruction, a chapter of judgment, a chapter that reveals your righteous indignation and your wrath that's coming upon the world. And yet, God, even in this, there are lessons for us to learn. There are things, God, that you have chosen by your sovereign plan that we should know what the future holds. And so, God, I pray for myself that you would show me how to properly instruct and teach and convey your word this morning. And Holy Spirit, I acknowledge that I have nothing to offer and I'm relying on you that you might empower me, that my words might not fall, but God, hit the mark in the hearts of these men and women and young people and also that it would hit the mark in my own heart, God, that we might be a holy people, that we might fully give ourselves to the things that matter and last for eternity and God, that we might take warning as well. And so, God, we give this time to you and pray that you would be glorified and honored both in the teaching of your word as well as in the response of our hearts to your word. And we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. John begins this section having revealed the first six seals, the opening of those seals which brought destruction. And he tells us that this seventh seal, when it was opened by the Lamb of God, brought a silence in heaven. Now, considering the catastrophic events that we've read in chapter 4 through 7, the sudden deafening silence had to be startling. It's the calm before the storm of judgment to come. I remember when I was a boy that uh, I experienced in a very, very small way the calm before the storm when my dad would discipline me. My dad had this technique of discipline that was quite interesting. It wasn't the actual discipline itself. It was everything that led up to the discipline. And as I told you last week, I wasn't always a a, a perfect little boy and uh, oftentimes was in trouble. And my dad would say, Bob, I want you to go to my room and wait for me there. So I would go knowing what was coming. He had this big wooden hairbrush. It was a clothes brush. And and, uh, it, it, uh, it, it hurt. And I remember exactly how it felt. And... Uh, but I knew that hairbrush was coming and I knew it was going to uh, mete out uh, an appropriate punishment for my transgressions as a little boy. So I would go into his room and there I would sit on the edge of his bed waiting for him while he was, you know, watching TV on the couch. And I would wait and I would wait (laughs) and I would wait Sometimes it was like 10 minutes and sometimes it was like half an hour and a couple times he forgot me in there. And I would just be waiting, you know, anticipating what was coming. And I don't know what was worse, the emotional anguish of waiting or the actual physical pain of the punishment. In Zechariah, the Bible says that in reference to this time that the people of the earth are to be still before the Lord, all mankind, because He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. And the king of our house would rouse himself from his couch and from the TV and come and mete out appropriate punishment for me. And it was just that, that silence was like deadly. <laughs> and sometimes I would just say, Dad, get it over with already. Come in here. Then take care of business so I can go on with my day. And so there was silence in heaven while 
All of heaven waited for the verdict and for the next pronouncement of the next judgment against the sin of mankind. Now John at that point sees seven angels. Now these angels, as as it says here, are standing before the throne of God and they have been given seven trumpets. Now we don't really know who these angels are, but they're very specific. Uh, They're not angels that we've talked about before or looked at before. These angels are separate. Now many believe... Uh, in fact, according to Jewish writings in the Apocrypha and in the book of First Enoch, who some of you may be familiar with, uh, the uh, uh, tradition believes that these angels were Gabriel, Michael, these two angels we know of. Now, there are five others that are not known in, in the uh, standard scriptures, but their names are Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Sarakel, and Remiel. And I want you to memorize those before the service is over. They all end with that kind of E-L, so you can kind of, it's a mnemonic thing. But it doesn't really matter who they were. The point is, is that they are standing before God and they've been given seven trumpets of the judgment of God. Now, trumpets were a very important part of Israel. In fact, out of all the instruments that Israel had, the trumpet was, without question, the most vital and important for a variety of reasons. People were called uh, together with trumpets, War was declared with the sounding of a trumpet. Uh, The announcement of festivals and special events was also uh, accompanied by the sounding of trumpets. You remember at Mount Sinai, at the giving of the law, there was a trumpet that was sounded. We also have um, uh, Jericho. Remember the story that we love so much about the miracle power of God marching around uh, the walls of Jericho and then sounding their trumpets and then the walls falling down. Whenever a king was anointed in Israel, a trumpet would be sounded. But we also know from Scripture that uh, the announcing of disaster by the heavenly host was oftentimes accompanied by trumpets. In Amos, and I'm going to be referencing a number of Old Testament Scriptures that are prophecies regarding this very specific time that we're talking about today. In Amos chapter 3, the Scripture says, When a trumpet sounds in the city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the Sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing His plan to His servants, the prophets. God, in His sovereignty, has revealed His plan of coming judgment to His prophets. Every prophet, both minor and major in the Old Testament, reveal some aspect of this final time that the book of Revelation talks about. And John, of course, himself, the Apostle, has been given a very clear and specific and detailed account of what the end times will include. And God has not hidden it from us, but He is definitely sounding a trumpet announcing the disaster that's about to occur and take place in this world. Now these angels have something very specific if you're following along in the Bible. It says another angel, a separate angel, not any one of these seven, but a different one, who had a golden censer which is like a fire pan. It's almost like a jiffy pop on a stick it's a big long pole and there's a a fire pan that was made out of bronze or gold and it would be used to hold hot coals uh, that would be used for burning incense and this angel had one of these censers and he came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and so we find this angel with much incense. And again, if you remember uh, Revelation chapter 5 as we were talking about the churches, uh, not the church, but the the saints 
or the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures who had these bowls of incense with the prayers of the saints from all eternity, from as long as man has been alive on earth, God has preserved the prayers of these saints. And the 24 elders had them in their hands and so did the four living creatures and they brought them before God as an incense, as a fragrant aroma. And the smoke of these prayers went up before God into His very presence. The psalmist says in Psalm 141, May my prayer be set before you like incense and may the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. You know, sometimes we wonder if our prayers ever reach God. Have you ever felt like you just had like a stone ceiling or there was a glass ceiling over the top of you and you were praying and you just didn't seem to be able to get through to God and sometimes you've wondered if God ever even hears your prayer or if they have any impact And I know for myself that sometimes prayer can be a lonely venture. It can be a very challenging thing to do in the Christian life, especially when we don't see immediate answers. But in this passage, when the angel comes before the throne of God and offers a sacrifice with and mingled with the prayers of all the saints from all eternity, the smoke of that prayer rises up before the throne of God. And for the Lord God, it's a sweet aroma and a fragrance. Now, why do I mention all this? Well, I mention it because when we pray, if we pray according to His will, and we pray in faith, the Bible says that we will always have an answer. It's not always clear and apparent to us immediately. Sometimes the answer is, no, I love you too much to give that to you. Or say, no, not yet. Or, yes, I want to give that to you. That's exactly what I wanted to give you. Or, yes, I want to give it to you, but you didn't pray nearly for enough and I want to give you more than you even asked for. But not one of your prayers has ever gone unheard and not one of your prayers will ever fall short of the ears of God. In fact, the Bible says, as we'll note in a few minutes, is that your prayers for justice and for righteousness are going to be answered, if not now, in the last days in the judgment of God. Those prayers will then become a part of God's forward momentum in bringing judgment upon the world. Some of you have had grievous things done against you in this life. Some of you have experienced terrible injustice in this life. And then many, many, many of us have experienced all varieties and kinds and shades of injustice in life. And all I can tell you is that the Bible says that we are not to take vengeance, but we are to leave that to God alone, who alone is righteous. And as you pray and as you surrender yourself to God, be assured that God will punish wickedness and iniquity. And He will right every wrong, and He will never let one of your prayers fall short of His ears. That's a great encouragement to me. And I'm becoming more and more and more convinced of the power and necessity of prayer. And I want to read you a quote by an author, R.A. Torrance. This is what he says about prayer. He asks a question to start with. He says, What are the real master powers behind the world and what are the deeper secrets of our destiny? Here is the astonishing answer. The prayer of the saints and the fire of God. That means that more potent more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in the world, more powerful than anything else is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth. 
There are few things that you can give yourself to that are more powerful than prayer. And yet it's probably out of all the things in the Christian life, it's the thing that's least accessed by the church of God. Primarily because it's, it's hard work. It takes a lot of effort. And yet every time that we give ourselves to it, we get blessed. We come to God to pray and to be used to do His will and yet in return we leave just rejoicing. And I didn't know Troy was going to make mention today of, uh, of our prayer time on Friday, but I go out of there flying every, every Friday. I just am like, wow, that was incredible. But while we're doing it, it's work. And yet God fills us with tremendous joy knowing we're partnering in His divine and eternal purposes. And so we have a great privilege of praying and knowing that our prayers are not counting just for now for the immediate moment but also for all eternity and the Bible says that this fire that this angel took from his censer was thrown and hurled to the earth and we'll note in a few minutes some of the consequences of that fire that's hurled but I want to remind you of Jesus words in chapter 12 of Luke where he said I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled but the time at Jesus life was not right But Jesus will bring fire and this scripture makes it clear that it is coming. It's going to produce a thunder and a rumbling and a lightning and even an earthquake. And these are things that we see repetitively in the book of Revelation. In fact, these cosmic disruptions happen almost every time that God is just about to enact another stage or another aspect of His judgment. And again, the prophets declare this. They talk about it thousands of years ago in some cases saying that This is what the Lord Almighty says, In a little while, once more, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. And now John begins to see the seven angels prepare to blow these seven trumpets, and they blow them in sequence. And we don't know exactly how long the time frame is between the blowing of these trumpets, whether it's sequential and very quickly or if it's over a period of time, but certainly not too long a period of time because we know that the tribulation period itself has limitations of seven years and the worst of it for three and a half years as we've studied earlier. But the seventh trumpet, when it's blown, introduces a second series of of judgments uh, that we'll be studying in the weeks to come called the bowl judgments. And... uh, Uh, the intensity and severity of these judgments increase with every series. As as we mentioned uh, when we were talking about the seals, the seal judgments are going to be bringing death to one quarter of the earth's population. And a few weeks ago I was talking about 5.25 billion people. I was wrong by only, you know, 75... What would that be? 5.25, that's a lot of people. It's like 750 million people I was off. Because just recently, if you've been reading the news, we now have six billion people. And I don't know how they picked the baby over in, over in Europe, but they managed to find exactly the six billionth baby that was born. Uh, the UN was so gracious to help us with that. But we now have six billion. That means a quarter of the Earth's population will be eradicated through these judgments. That's 1.5 billion people that will lose their lives in the opening salvos of the tribulation. The Bible is going to tell us in the trumpet judgments that another one-third of what's remaining will then lose their lives. That means another 1.5 billion. That's a total of 3 billion people 
will lose their lives as a result of the judgment of God on the earth. That only leaves half the population. And we know from the bold judgments to come that even more will die. Many are going to die through the various judgments that we're even looking at today are not calculated as a part of these judgments that are coming. So commentators and and, uh, theologians believe that somewhere between a quarter and a half of the population of the world will be all that's left at the second coming of Christ. It's a reminder again that human wickedness is not going to go unpunished in the earth. Now, the first angel, if you'll follow with me in verse 7, sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. So we have a, a judgment against the vegetation of the earth. The Bible says that this judgment is hurled down upon the earth of hail, fire, and blood. Now, we've never seen a combination of these three in Scripture anywhere. We've seen hail and fire. We've seen hail. We've never seen blood cast on the earth. And we've certainly never seen all three cast upon the earth. Now, some have described this phenomena as an electrical storm of some kind, but that doesn't at all describe and and reflect or deal with the whole issue of blood being rained down on the earth along with the fire and hail. But we do have other occasions in the Bible where we do see this kind of a judgment. If you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, judgment against uh, a wicked people came down in, in burning sulfur and killed everything in those two cities. We also have the seventh plague of Egypt raining down hail and killing livestock and men and women and children and also uh, destroying crops. We have Joshua's defeated of the Amorites in Joshua chapter 10. Five kings allied themselves together to come against the people of Israel and Joshua and his army came together to fight the battle. But so like God, they didn't even have to lift a hand because God rained down these large, boulder-sized hail on the enemy and more were killed on that day from hail than from the sword, as the scripture teaches us. And so we do have descriptions of this kind of thing taking place. But again, in Ezekiel, we have a prophetic vision of this very day that we're talking about that's coming. The prophet says, uh, as God is speaking, I will execute judgment with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones and burning sulfur. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So we discover one of the purposes of God in His judgment. It's not just the punishment of iniquity, but it's a declaration once and for all of who He is. Now some of you may have a problem with this. Your problem is not with me, but it's with God Himself. These are His words. His description of Himself is holy and righteous. Part of that means that He will not allow iniquity to go unpunished. And He will not allow men and women except for this brief period of time deny His deity. The time is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will be acknowledged. Now the result of this blood and fire and hail is that a third of the earth is going to be burned up. And I don't think it's just talking about you know, remote areas. I think it's talking about a third of the earth that some of those areas will be populated and some won't. There's going to be massive destruction that comes especially from the burning uh, sulfur that's going to be coming down but also from the hail. 
I don't know what blood is going to do, but it's a part of the judgment of God. We're also told that a third of the trees are going to be burned up and a third of the grass is going to be burned up. Now, besides the obvious ramifications of losing a third of, of the vegetation of the earth, including the trees, we're looking at losing a third of the lumber industry. We're looking at losing a, a third of the capacity to produce anything that's related to paper products or anything having to do with wood products at all. But we're also looking at the possible impact on one of the most basic needs of human life, and that's oxygen. If you go back to uh, your biology back in high school or college, is that the beautiful byproduct, the waste product of vegetation, is oxygen. It takes carbon dioxide and sucks that up, and then it turns it into oxygen. But we're going to lose one-third of all our oxygen-producing plant life in this judgment. And I don't know exactly what impact that will have, but it certainly can't be good for the earth. Now the second angel sounds his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea was turned to blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And so this angel strikes the sea. And so in this judgment we have a huge mountain. Now it doesn't say it is a mountain, it says something like a mountain. And it doesn't say it's coming out of the atmosphere or coming out from the heavens. It just says it was thrown down. Now, we don't know exactly where it was thrown down from. A lot of people speculate about a meteor or, or an, an asteroid. But the fact is, is that we just don't know what it is. But it's going to be thrown down into the sea. And, and it, I think it's a safe assumption that it's going to hit some sort of a local region. There's going to be a ground zero impact point. And that impact is going to have tremendous ramifications the Bible says that a third of the sea is going to be turned to blood. I don't know what the connection is. Some have said it's only going to look like blood because of the, the content of this mountain or asteroid or meteor that hits. But the Bible says it's blood. Now, if you go back to the book of Exodus and you look at the judgment, the very first judgment of God and plague that God sent against the people of Egypt, it was blood. It wasn't like blood. It didn't smell like blood or, or just have the appearance of blood. The people couldn't drink it and it was blood. The Bible tells us that it was undrinkable and that it killed all the fish and it stunk. That's not some symbolic representation of some sort of evil teaching or wickedness in the world. It's blood. And so a third of the sea is going to be turned to blood and of course everything that is affected by that very much like a, an oil slick or whatever it's going to just decimate everything in its path one of the things that's so encouraging in Psalm 46 that uh, Greg read so beautifully today is that we don't have any reason to fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea though its waters roar and foam and mountains quake with their surging we have nothing to fear because God is with us. God is our refuge, our fortress, our mighty tower. And frankly, at this point, the church won't even be here. But those who come to Christ following the tribulation or during the tribulation will have to endure these very difficult times. And the Bible says for them, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will guard you with my righteous right hand. And so the tribulation saints will be able to count on the protection of God. So we know that this plague 
or this, uh, this mountain that's thrown is going to cause the sea to turn to blood. A third of the living creatures are going to die. And again, we're talking about some of the most fundamental components of the food chain in the earth is involving the sea. And if you decimate one-third of the food chain population in the earth, we've got some very serious domino effect that's going to take place on the higher forms, not only in the oceans, but also in the world. Now we know that this plague or this mountain that's going to be falling is only a precursor to what's going to happen in Revelation 16 in the bowl judgment because at that point the whole of the sea and ocean will be turned to blood along with every river and every source of water, every spring, every well, everything will be turned to blood at that point. Now interestingly it says that one third of the ships are going to be destroyed as a result of this impact as well. And uh, if you give it just a little bit of thought, it makes sense. If you've got something like a huge mountain, not a, it could be, again, a meteor uh, or a, 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 some sort of a, a satellite, some have suggested. It doesn't really make any difference, but the impact is going to be so significant that it's going to cause tidal waves and tsunamis and flooding all over the globe. Every port of call will suffer destruction. Quite likely, for those ships that are out at sea, far away from the impact zone, they're going to be okay. But it's the ships near the impact zone. It's also the ships that are in port that will suffer the tsunami and the tidal waves that will result from this impact that will be destroyed. It is going to be a terrible time. And not to make light of it, but if you want to do any cruising on a ship, I would suggest you get it out of the way now. And for any that are left at the time of the tribulation, get it done before this mountain hits the water because your chances are very high that you'll lose your life if you're on a cruise ship. And I find it interesting. Why the cruise ships? Why, why is God so concerned about ships and plants and trees? And the Lord took me to Isaiah chapter 2 and I'm going to take a moment to read it to you. It says the eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men will be brought low. This is the, one of the major reasons of God's judgment and the coming judgment is because of the pride and arrogance of man. He goes on and says, The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, referring to this day of tribulation. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, for all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, and listen to this, for every trading ship and every stately vessel. Interesting, isn't it, that God is going to judge even vessels. Not because of the technology, but because of the pride that, that mankind will take in these. Do you know that they are now building ships, I just read this recently, that are going to be bigger than the Titanic and they're going to be visiting ports of call all over the world, including Kauai? Now, unknown to them, they're going to be losing a lot of these ships, but they're going to be thinking, okay, I'm going to be making money anyway. But by the way, did I forget to mention and remind you that in the seven seal judgments that all the islands are going to disappear so they're not going to have a place to come to over here. They're going to have to hit ports of call in the continental United States or places where there aren't islands. There will be no place for these ships to land. But in the pride and the arrogance and the self-centeredness of mankind, God will judge even the technology and the pride of man, including the ships. Now, just as the people on earth are absorbing the impact of the second trumpet judgment, the earth's astronomers 
identify another fearful sight and a great wonder in heaven. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on a third of the springs of water and the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. And so John sees that the rivers and the springs are now going to be struck and the judgment is this great star falling from the sky. Now the Bible records a number of other occasions when stars fall from heaven in the last days and uh, in Matthew 24, Mark 13 and Revelation 6. But this particular star is unique in that it's actually named for us. This star is called Wormwood. Now Wormwood is actually a plant. We're not really familiar with it too much. We don't use it for anything for obvious reasons. It's just bitter. It's kind of a green, sappy plant and it's not normally poisonous but it's clear from John's description of the impact of this star that the bitterness that is going to come from it will cause death in the waterways and in the drinking uh, um, water that the world has access to. Now, it's going to come blazing and maybe like, a, like a, uh, an asteroid or some sort of a, a Halley's Comet or something like that, it's going to come into the Earth's atmosphere and it's going to be burning bright as it comes down. The Bible says like a torch. And I can't tell you exactly how God in His sovereignty and power is going to have that star impact only the waterways. I don't know how He's going to do that. There are a lot of things I don't know how He's going to do. I'm sure when, when, uh, when the Israelites and Joshua and his crew were watching, marching around the mountain, they were thinking, how in the world is marching around uh, this city going to cause us to have victory? But they walked in obedience. And now, in hindsight, of course, we can see the power of God to do anything that He wants. And the walls came down. And very much in the same way, this great star is going to fall and strategically is going to affect rivers and springs, the sources of our drinking water. And the Scripture says that the result is a third of the water will be turned bitter. Interesting, it's the reverse of the miracle in the Old Testament of the people of, Egypt, of, uh, of Israel during the Exodus. The waters of Marah. Anybody remember? There was a bitterness in the water. The people were so thirsty. And so they found this, this body of water and they went to drink it and, and the people came, oh, it's bitter. It causes death. And so God instructed and they were able to turn the bitter water sweet. But here in this passage, we have God turning sweet water bitter. You know, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, the Lord has the power and the capacity, even in our own lives, to make our lives bitter or extremely sweet. For men and women who serve Him, who love Him, who honor Him, He makes their waters sweet. It doesn't mean that there's no trouble, but God makes your life sweet. I've been a Christian since 1976. Eight. That's a long time, it seems to me anyway. That's more than half my life. And I just find my life getting sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. But I've also seen men and women who refuse to come to Christ. And their lives seem to get more bitter and more difficult and emptier and more challenging. And I encourage them and I talk with them and I pray with them and I say, Come to Christ. He's the wellspring of life. And some do. And they taste and they see that the Lord is good. But there are others that God hems in 
for the purpose of letting them come and creating a thirst in them to come to the sweet waters of Jesus Christ. But these waters are going to be turned bitter. And again, as I've said previously, that God's purpose in these judgments is not simply to punish wickedness, but it's also to motivate men and women to see His desire that they would turn and have life. Jesus Himself, God, uh, says, Why would you die when you can have life? Why would you die? And so He gives mankind on earth the opportunity through these ever-increasingly intense judgments to turn. And these bitter waters cause many people to die. Now while politicians and world leaders and scientists are attempting to find naturalistic explanations for these phenomena, these catastrophic events that are going to be striking the world and their emergency responses to the effects of it, yet another trumpet will be sounded. The fourth trumpet that's in verse 12. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. And so God strikes the heavens with a judgment of taking away our light sources. We're told that a third of the sun was dark, a third of the moon and a third of the stars. In fact, this is prophesied by Jesus himself and there are numerous Dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament of this coming day. But Jesus himself says, immediately after the distress in those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And that definitely will happen. Now, I want you to listen to a passage and you'll have to listen carefully because it's, it's, uh, it's several verses. But it talks about this very day of darkness that's coming in the book of Isaiah. The scripture says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, for the wickedness of their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and the humble and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more than rare gold of Ophir, Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Sovereign Lord Almighty in the day of His burning anger. These are frightening passages. And as the scripture says, God doesn't want anyone to perish but everyone to come to life. And He gives us multiple, multiple, multiple opportunities over and over and over to come to Him and receive His life but some will refuse and suffer. Now the Bible says that a result of this judgment, a third of the day is going to be without light and a third of the night. Now if you read the passage carefully, it seems to imply that not only were the source of the light diminished by a third in their power, but also 
the extent or the duration during the day will be diminished as well. So each of the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars are going to be diminished in their intensity by a third, but also that during the day the sun will only shine for a third of the day instead of the whole day as we normally have today. Now the impact of this is going to be incalculable. World climates will suddenly change, temperatures will dramatically drop, and there's going to be unpredictable atmospheric storms as well as interruptions to botanical and biological growth cycles that are dependent on light for photosynthesis. And as a result, the world's food supply is going to be destroyed. Now, we don't know how long this judgment will last, if it's going to be a few days or a few weeks or a few months, but what we do know is that it will be reversed in a very terrifying way in the bowl judgments because there will come a time in Revelation 6 when the sun will become so intense that mankind will be scorched by its intense heat. Now, amazingly, there are going to be those who in spite of all of these very clear judgments that are the fulfillment of prophecy and the 144,000 Messianic Jews along with whoever's left alive that has a Bible in their hand will be able to go to this text and find out what's coming next and be able to line it up and say, my gosh, this is the judgment of God. This isn't just something, some kind of a natural phenomena, but God is striking the world because of our sin. Let's repent. Now some will, but others won't. And they won't be convinced. It won't be because there's not enough evidence, but it will be because of the hardness of heart and the pride and the unwillingness to bow the knee before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ. And so God sends... Another messenger. Verse 13. As John was watching, he heard an eagle that was flying in midair calling out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. It's as if to say, it's going to get a lot worse. The first four are going to be overshadowed by the next three. Woe, woe, woe. A woe for each one. If I can put it in current day vernacular, it would be bummer, bummer, bummer. <laughs> this is going to be terrible. It's going to be awful. Again, warning the people. Interesting, an eagle flying in midair at the highest point of the heaven, calling out in this loud voice. And he's saying this to the inhabitants of the earth. Who are the inhabitants of the earth? Those who have failed to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. And he tells them a woe for each of the coming trumpet judgments of chapter 9. And they are grievous. I have to tell you, it's probably one of the most frightening chapters of the whole book of Revelation. Because the Bible tells us in Revelation 9 that the fifth trumpet judgment will be locusts that will torment mankind for five months. And I won't take time to talk about it now, but they have the stings of a scorpion and they are going to inflict torturous punishment upon mankind for a period of five months and men are going to be crying out to die. They are going to commit suicide, attempt to, but will not be allowed to die for a period of five months. The sixth trumpet judgment in Revelation 9, 13 through 19 are the 200 million horsemen of God, the apocalyptic horsemen who are going to come and the horses and the, the, these riders will be able to breathe fire and there's going to be on the tail of the horse something like a snake that can bite and, and destroy and kill. 
and they are going to decimate the population by a third. And then the seventh trumpet is going to usher in the most devastating of all the judgments, which is the seven bowl judgments. Now, I wish that this chapter was something that really lifted us. I wish that this chapter you would leave and say, Oh, I just want to worship the Lord. I, I can't believe how wonderful He is. And that's not really my response to this chapter. I'm in awe of Him, yes. But you can't rejoice at the judgment of God. Even though God is judging sin and iniquity and unrighteousness, to see what will happen to mankind grieves me. I don't delight, and none of us should, in God's judgment against the wicked. But nonetheless, He will judge. And I think there's some things that we can take away from this chapter today and benefit from as we understand this prophetic vision that John is unfolding regarding these terrible times. I think the first thing is, is that those of you that know Jesus Christ, I, I beg you, I exhort you in the name of the Lord to make your priorities to be in line with those of Jesus Christ. There is not time to waste everything that we give ourselves to so, so, so continually at times that has nothing to do with the eternal things of God. God says, turn away from those things and give yourself to something that has lasting value. I think that's one thing that we can learn. I think the second thing that we can learn is to understand that it serves as a warning to those who continue in sin and reject Jesus Christ. And there may be those of you that have never committed your life to Christ. And this, this passage serves as a warning. It's a, it's, a, it's a shot over the bow, so to speak, before, it even, before war even begins and says, Come to Christ. Why would you die? Why would you suffer? And so he gives the opportunity in advance for us to know the beginning and the end of the story. I think the third thing it can do is motivate us who are believers to share the truth with our friends and family and to leave behind embarrassment or fear or shame in the name of Jesus Christ and realize that their very lives for eternity are at stake. Certainly we can endure a little bit of embarrassment and a little eye-rolling and a little snickering about our commitment to Jesus Christ in order to proclaim the gospel so that those who do receive it can have eternal life. And I think the last thing that I'd like to mention as a benefit from this chapter is that it assures us of God's ultimate victory over sin and evil. You may be struggling and suffering under some injustice and God's word to you is that it will not go unpunished. I will avenge, says the Lord God Almighty. I want to finish by reading a passage from 2 Peter chapter 3. In fact, I'd like you to turn there if you would. Second Peter chapter 3, and I'll just be reading verses 9 through 14. I really encourage you, you'll notice in your notes, in terms of application, I encourage you to take time this week and uh, do that exercise that you have listed in your notes there. But this passage is very important. It talks about, uh, as just a brief introduction to it, about what kind of people should we be in light of this coming judgment of God. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. He's referring to salvation. As some understand slowness, He is patient with you, 
not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And I would say, ought we to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. This is not our home. We're looking forward to something far better. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. I'd encourage you today to do whatever it takes in order to be at peace with God today. Make peace with Him. For some of you, it means making peace for the very first time. Coming into His family. Receiving Him as Savior. For others of you who are Christians, it means confessing and renouncing sin. Asking His forgiveness for having put your priorities in all the wrong places. Storing up for yourselves heaps and treasures and material goods when the Bible says that all of these things will pass away. Your focus has been in the wrong place instead of the kingdom of God and the things to come. And I encourage you to respond to Peter's call. And really, it's Jesus' call. He put the words in Peter's heart and mouth. Helped Peter pen them. What kind of people ought we to be in light of the coming judgment of God and not only the judgment, but the promise that He's given us of eternal life, abundant life, everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It's certainly not a pretty picture that we've understood today, God, but it's a, a necessary part of the truth of what's coming. And all we can say is very much like in Proverbs that a man is blessed, a woman is blessed if they have a friend who is willing to tell them the truth. And Father, you've stabbed us again in the front with the truth of what's coming. And Lord, I pray that the, the word would not fall short, but God, that you would let it penetrate our hearts and we would recognize the devastation that's coming upon this earth. And Lord, that we would use every moment, every day, every breath, every bit of energy we've got for the building of your kingdom. And that we might serve you and you alone and that you might allow us the privilege and honor of being your servants and bearing fruit in every good work. Now bless your people, God. Encourage them. Fill them with your power and your spirit that they might do wondrous works in your name and be effective in the proclamation of the gospel of hope and peace and life in Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in the wonderful and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.